Welcome to The Disability Track, a podcast that explores the lives of those with disabilities and long-term health conditions in the UK. Hi, I'm Steph. Hi, I'm Wadaly, and welcome to the second episode of The Disability Track. So, yeah, if you've listened to our first one, thank you and we'd love to know what you think about it so if you could rate or review it on itunes that'd be cool because then it will lead other people who are interested to our podcast and also will know how we're doing if you haven't listened to it why not um yeah you can listen to it on soundcloud or itunes so how have you been since we last recorded stuff yeah i've been all right Mm -hmm. uh getting used to new med dosage so trying to function more like a human it's been quite nice yeah that's always good that's always good yeah you always forget how what normal feels like don't you yeah because my normal was like having panic attacks because i dropped something Mm. something stupid but no i've been able to do like full-time hours nice which i've never been able to do before and it hasn't affected me as much as i thought it would that's brilliant whereas when I first started working again like 15 was too much Mm -hmm. and I've done 37 this week result so yeah whoever said uh, medication doesn't help uh can come and meet me in a Tesco car park and have a throwdown uh I'll I'll be filming oh yeah obviously we've got to get YouTube (laughs) famous somehow yeah awesome how have you been yeah, I've been good actually. Um, started a new job, and so I've been doing some training for that. And also, I went to Norfolk Disability Pride. Uh, it was last month, and that is a it's run by a Norfolk charity called Equal Lives, and it was like a little kind of festival thing, and it had some exhibitions, some talks, kids activities, interactive stuff. And yeah, it was really, really good and really like it was buzzing. There's loads of people there and there was music outside and it was a really, really good turnout. So I hope they do it again next year. Yeah, it looked really good. I was like following up on Twitter and that. I just couldn't get there for it. Yeah, we'll go next year. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So I'm going to lead straight into the first segment and that is the headlines. And the first story that I found was in Crawley Observer and that was that Gatwick has opened... It's the first UK airport to open a sensory room for passengers. And it's a room in the North Terminal that opened earlier this month, which is designed for passengers with autism, dementia, cognitive impairment and other needs to make them feel at ease before their flight. So that room has floor cushions in it, bean bags, digital display panels, and it also has a little interactive zone with tactile panels, textures to stimulate senses and a game that improves memory and motor skills. It's all free. You just have to book it. I think you have to book 45 hours slots. And 45 cheap... hours? Sorry, 45 minute <laughs> slots. What is with you? <laughs> you must stay in there for 45 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so the CEO of the National Autistic Society said, a calming space like this can help autistic people to decompress and relax before departure, helping them to better manage their anxiety during the flight. Supportive spaces like these play an essential role in opening up the world for autistic people and their families. Um, they weren't actually the... F- well, okay, so they were the first UK airport, but 
Shannon Airport in Ireland were the first in Europe to have a sensory room. That kind of surprises me that it was in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't think, would you? But hey, we no. should. No. If we you should. just said, like, France, I'm like, oh, yeah, very European. Very forward yeah, thinking. We, but, like, Ireland, we, that's really cool. We shouldn't dismiss Ireland. Shannon Airport, yeah, they they were the first. And they were actually visited by Gatwick. So I think Gatwick found inspiration in them and then opened theirs. I don't know. It seems like more and more corporations are becoming aware of what they can do to make things better for their customers with autism Mm. because some supermarkets have introduced quieter hour for autistic shoppers who struggle with music noise and bright lights so they dim the lights turn the music off and avoid using the tunnel they turn on checkout beeps i know morrison's in norwich does that which is yeah which is pretty cool and um i think it has to be said that a lot of this change seems to be because of pressure and consultation from charities like the national autistic society so kudos to them yeah and i have to say that in our next episode we're talking about autism with the autistic author laura james and yeah we had a good chat didn't we stuff yeah that was really interesting because mm-hmm. like autism is one of those um like disabilities you hear a lot about it but if you'd have asked me, what is autism? Like, even the day before, I literally didn't know. Like, uh-huh. I couldn't, I did know, but I couldn't define it. It's yeah, just you kind have of a vague idea. I'd heard. So I had to research yeah. it to be able to interview Laura. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same thing. It's interesting as well, because I remember her saying during the interview that she gets selective mutism during flying. Oh, okay. So for an airport sensory room, for someone like her that's so scared of flying... Yeah, she did say that, didn't she? Yeah. So move on to my next story. I'm sorry, I've just looked it up. <laughs> what you were telling me? A mother and dis- um, a mother and son designed the sensory room. What? The Gatwick sensory room? Yeah. There's a wow. BBC London link on YouTube. Mother and son designed a sensory room at Gatwick Airport. No way. Right, okay, so we'll put that in the show notes. So my next story is that wheelchair user Rachel Wallach set up a company which makes adaptable wheelchairs via 3D printing. And I found this story in The Guardian and it explains how at 18, Rachel broke her spine and lost the use of her legs. Things got a lot difficult from there, but she managed to study philosophy at Cambridge Uni, went on to do work with disabled people in the public sector, and then set up Disrupt Disability in 2016. And she came to setting that up by thinking about adaptability and how society ignores the individual needs of wheelchair users. In the article, she points out that there's a one-size-fits-all mentality when it comes to wheelchair design. There isn't much variation. She compares it to the early days of NHS glasses frames. She says, when you can only wear one kind of frame, then glasses become stigmatising. That's true of other medical devices as well. So, Disrupt Disability offers alternatives, like it offers customisable wheelchairs, which have varied sizes, designs of seats. She offers wheelchairs adaptable to sand, snow and other terrain. She also makes an interesting point about the NHS. She says, the NHS focuses on how it can meet the most need. It doesn't have the capacity and it probably isn't right for the NHS to shape the commercial side of the market. She wants to empower wheelchair users by viewing them as consumers. So that is something that I want to discuss with you, Steph, because by pointing out that the NHS is public, she kind of suggests that the public nature of it can hinder wheelchair users in a way, which is interesting. I do think it's... It's interesting because it it is a good thing that like wheelchair users are going to see something that is designed for them and will make their life easier. 
But then yeah. there's also the commercial aspect mm-hmm. of being kind of commercialized to make is what makes you valid and seen. That makes okay. sense. There's a lot of thoughts in my head that I'm not very good at getting out. No, that's fine. So by making it a business thing and a kind of a commercial thing, you then make accessibility inaccessible for people with less money. Yes. And like with the NHS glasses, I remember my mum, she used to have them and she used to get bullied for them Mm -hmm. because kids would have the nicer, newer ones. But because she was from a lower income family, she couldn't afford that. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think that... I think it would be quite cool for other wheelchair users to bully other wheelchair users. But it does have that kind of same, you can't get something that is better for you and functions better Uh if you don't have the money. That's true. In the article, it does point out that at the moment, they use the term, the wheelchairs from disrupt disability aren't inexpensive. And that's an issue. But it seems like that is because it's in the first stages. So hopefully as Rachel develops and develops the company, the price will come down. Yeah. The other thing is the thought that just died in my head that I was going <laughs> to say. It'll come back to me in a second. All right. Should we move on for the moment? No, give me the second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I think what I was trying to say is she's starting the thing that will make it accessible because okay. what she's doing is even though, it's expe- even though it's expensive, she's creating a thing that doesn't exist right now. Yes. And yeah. once that thing exists... It doesn't matter if it's expensive or not. That is a good thing that it exists. And yeah, that's true. As the company develops, as other people might, other companies might be like, "Hey, that's a good idea." You know, making wheelchairs that actually work for the people that are buying them. It might then become more inexpensive in the same way that, for example, designer glasses are becoming less expensive. Yeah, that's true. That's true. See, it was a good thought. You just need to not talk at me. It was. I'll know for next Thank time. Thank you. <laughs> right. We now have an interview with our very first special guest, Raymond Antrobus. Raymond is a deaf poet from London. He is the author of collections like Shapes and Disfigurements, To Sweet and Bitter, and The Perseverance, which won the Poetry Book Society's Winter's Choice this year. He has performed his poetry at festivals like Glastonbury and Latitude, as well as universities such as Oxford and Goldsmiths. I interviewed him at the Norfolk and Norwich Festival after his panel discussion with Joyce Dunbar and Elia Gulimani earlier this year. I enjoyed, um, like, what Joyce Dunbar was saying about how she's been writing for so many years and she's never been on a panel with two other deaf people, yeah. two other deaf writers. Um, so one of the things about an event like this is they're so few and far between that when you are given this opportunity, this stage to share a space with other deaf writers and other people who want to talk about deafness and what that is as an experience, but also as um, as a creative thing you can do something with um, there's this pressure to kind of say everything you want to say about it there's loads to say about it mm-hmm. you know um, so I do feel like I, I enjoyed it it went well but I am also thinking like ah oh, there's all of this other stuff that I want to talk about yeah. as well um, but I think that that that's fine because yeah. we're writers so we can you know write about that yeah I think the audience would have been happy to hear more from you like it was, <laughs> it was overrunning like <laughs> yeah it did really overrun oh yeah 
Um, so do you mind telling me a bit about your deafness, which is when you were diagnosed? So um, when I was born, I was born in 1986, and this interesting thing happened in 1986, at the end of, of that year, the NHS started giving mandatory hearing tests mm -hmm. to uh, all babies being born. I just missed that. So I was born without being given that hearing test. So but the first seven years of my life, I was deaf and it wasn't diagnosed. My parents thought I was aloof or that I was rebelling already. I, I was really slow being able to write, being able to speak and acquire language and also to walk. And when my mum realised I was deaf was when she saw she just bought this telephone, it was very loud to her, and I still wasn't hearing it. And she was looking at me and looking at the telephone. She said, oh, I think I get this now. So I was given hearing aids, I was given speech therapy, I was given extra support in schools. So I had all of this support behind me to catch up, particularly with my literacy. And so I feel like even now, being a poet, writing poetry, performing poetry, part of it is to prove people wrong yeah you know what I mean because I really did feel like people had a my teachers not all of them many of my teachers had a very low expectation of me uh, those teachers at the deaf school you went to well the first that the first school I went to wasn't a deaf school okay it was that my primary school was a hearing school my secondary school was a was a hearing school with a deaf unit okay. in North London called Blanche Neville which is part of a bigger school a mainstream school called Fortismere and you know, I got so much trauma almost from that time of trying to find my place. You know, like I was talking about earlier, you know, not just my place within the deaf world and the hearing world, but you know, racially, I'm Jamaican and I'm British. I'm also in between, like I have an older sister. There were all these different dynamics yeah. which were overwhelming to me mm -hmm. on top of all of the things that go on with just being young, being yes. a teenager, you know, like you're experiencing everything for the first time. But it is something that I'm grateful for now. And particularly I think about how much, again, how much support I got from the NHS. And I do lots of traveling now and I meet deaf people. You know, I was, I was um, meeting deaf people in Trinidad last, last month and the month before that in Jamaica and get, got to hear those experiences, see those experiences, share some language. And what's clear to me is, you know, there, a lot of those people that are born deaf in these other countries uh, don't have an NHS, don't have a support network. And here, even, you know, even in England, the Tory government have withdrawn 8 million of funding. I was going to ask, what's it like now with yeah, the it's, NHS? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, just, like, this just happened, mm -hmm. like, two months ago. And where's the media coverage? It's nowhere yeah. because people don't think that this is this matters. Yeah. But then when you say, look, 95% of people born deaf in the UK are growing up illiterate. You know, oh, sorry, it's 75%, but 95% in Jamaica, 98% uh, in Trinidad, which are the statistics that I've been given. And these are these are unofficial statistics as well because the, the government aren't looking for them. Like this is this is research that's been done by the specialists, by the people who are part of the deaf communities. So it it's such a it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy to me that people don't think that that is significant. Yeah. And that this isn't a conversation that should not just be happening 
locally but also globally yeah. you know because it's the same thing in every country you're talking about essentially raising awareness about um illiteracy within deaf people yeah you read in your poem dear Daring world yeah and yeah everyone found that incredibly powerful and poignant and one of the lyrics is lyrics lines mm. yeah. is I want the fate of Lazarus for every deaf school you've closed, mm. every deaf child whose confidence has gone to a silent grave, every BSL user who has seen the annihilation of their language. Why do you think that poetry is such a good form for sort of deaf activism and raising awareness? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so that poem was inspired in part by a poet called Dinez Smith, who is a US poet, just brought out a book called don't call us dead a really powerful exciting poet and they have a poem called dear white america and when i heard that i thought yeah what a great way to speak to power but then i thought there's something that's not you know there's there's an angle that 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 could be here in having a deaf poem addressing a hearing world and then being able to to sign it as well and have it signed Mm -hmm. and then that way it's the poem it's the language that's speaking to power yeah so that particular poem has had quite a journey with 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 me i wrote it about three years ago and um at first i was just worried that it would would be seen as kind of like ripping off denez okay and their poem but it's riffing Mm -hmm. you know so when you look at hip-hop and the way that hip hop use sampling, yeah. it's a riff, yeah. and like you, you might chop something up or something. So, yeah. and I have spoken, like sent there's a, a, a message on on Twitter just saying that you know this has happened. So you know once I got past that and kind of getting the green light of hey this is this is standing up on its own on mm-hmm. its own terms, yeah I feel I I like it because like if something can provoke a reaction or something can put something in someone's mind that wasn't there before, I feel like as a poet. I'm doing my job. Yeah. Well, you definitely did that today. Everyone loves that poem. <laughs> and that's just one of your like really successful poems. You've been published in a number of literary journals mm-hmm. and part of societies and won awards. So how did you get from your difficulties at school to that point? Like, what was the career journey? It went, it went really low because I was talking to a stage earlier about how many jobs I'd lost because of my deafness, mm-hmm. but because I didn't know how to assert it, because I was pretending I was hearing. I wasn't wearing my hearing aids or I was only wearing one hearing aid so I would look less deaf or I was pretending I could hear people when I couldn't I was like constantly putting myself in this position where I was just reliving trauma over and over and over again and uh, after the fourth job I lost I became suicidal I was ready to give up but I'd always written I'd always written stories poems I was into comics as well and in a way this was always this kind of mechanism this one thing I did and I saw someone on stage performing a poem I started to go to America and do some volunteer work there with some young people I'm 19 I've just lost my last job and I'm just desperate for something to do so I do this volunteer work and I meet what's called coders so children of deaf adults and they they really embraced me as a deaf person and that was my first time having people who were deaf aware in a way that was really welcoming to me and in a new place as well where I'm just looking for new experiences and new people so in that same trip I'm in a bar in Ohio of all places Columbus there's a talent night someone gets up and recites a poem and I look at that and I think that's what I want to do that's what I'm doing but I just needed to see the example came back to London and started doing this thing called slam poetry I looked it up online went to my first ever slam 
and I came runner-up in the slam to another poet called Deanna Roger and then I'm suddenly kind of part of this community of poets and that's what I was looking for I was looking for friends I was looking for community mm-hmm. and how that could be found through a shared passion and yeah so I did that I started doing that for years and things just gradually progressed a couple of years after that I came across this book called An Anger That Moves by Kai Miller and I read this poetry book from first poem to last poem and that I never forget reading the last poem in that book closing it and saying to myself oh I want to publish yeah this is incredible you know Kai Miller right you know is a Jamaican poet who writes in reverse about coming from Jamaica to England and the different different climates different conversations different interaction he had with English society and I've, I've also like grown up between England and Jamaica and all this kind of thing so the way that he was doing it and the, in a way with a language that I felt was really compelling and interesting and excited me just made me want to start yeah. yeah like taking my poetry to another level or to the page. Do you disclose your deafness when you're sort of like liaising with editors or colleagues or people that are commissioning you? Uh, that's a really good question. I at this point they need they know like yeah. it just it's what it's part of uh the poetics of what i write into but what i do have to do is is say what i need so i need to be facing you i need to see your lips um, um if they sign and a bit of sse but i've never come across an editor who signs mm, but has it has it kind of been a bit a challenge yes i mean i've only interestingly i'd say that it, Yes, it's been a challenge, but it's also gravitated me towards the people who were able to help me in a way that I didn't need to kind of put myself out there as, hey, I'm this disabled writer or I'm this writer who's not able-bodied who needs to do this thing. You know, um, my editor, one of the editors that I work with is a woman called Hannah Lowe, Mm -hmm. and she's a poet who also mixed race. Her parents were Chinese, Jamaican and English. She grew up in Ilford in London and I read her book and I emailed her and I said I love your work oh my goodness our stories have so many overlaps and she wrote back and she said oh great thank you hey let's meet up and I met up with her and we had this kind of relationship where we were just chatting talking about poems and then she edited my last book you know I just met up with her and said look I've got these poems and she read through them oh this is really strong work here's your best work put that in the book and I just always worth emailing someone yeah, yeah. yeah taking the chance so you were writing residence yep. but in some deaf schools? I, I was, yeah. Why do you feel that poetry is needed in that situation in deaf schools? I mean, I think it's needed in all schools. Deaf schools, you know, I was so, you know, like I said, when I, when I came across that statistic, that 75% of people born deaf in the UK uh, grow up illiterate. And they, they also put another word in front of that, which is functionally illiterate, okay. meaning they can function if they sign yeah. so they do have communication but they are they can't write standard English mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the the really powerful thing about poetry is you can you know there's this thing called poetic license where you can take use someone what everything that someone has everyone's relationship with a language and you can make something poetic out of that because you're not trying to mold it into uh, some kind of standardized test right and there's something really powerful about just giving young people a space to be able to explore without fear of being judged Mm -hmm. without fear of failing something yeah so you start there because once you build confidence 
you can take that confidence or that experience and this belief, this new belief that, that these young people may acquire and use that as a vehicle towards something which is which is on the curriculum. Yeah. And my whole thesis while I was at Goldsmith University was founded on this idea that emotional literacy, meaning if young people feel like they have an emotional investment or it's relevant to them and their lives, their emotional lives, they will have a different kind of approach to the work, right? And so in two years, I worked with 120, over 120 what's called low set English students from year seven to year 10. And in that time, 99% of every one of those students who came to after school spoken word poetry clubs went up at least one grade Brilliant. in their English. Yeah. So I've got all, you know, we've had all of this evidence yeah. for the impact that this work has and how the links between again self-perception belief confidence and how that applies to academic ability because yeah. there are links there but there are so many obstacles yeah. still yeah. in even though you have the proof you know even though you know you've got senior managements and you have obviously the <laughs> all the different really crazy standardized testing <sighs> It's just endless, yeah. the challenges. Yeah. But I know, I, I, I believe in poetry and I use poetry because I have seen it work time and time again. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stand here and say it's worked for every student I've ever had. But I've seen it work with enough students to know there's such a value in, in, this, in this work. Follow Raymond on Twitter at Raymond Antrobus and view his work on his website, RaymondAntrobus.com. Pop culture! Yeah. Yeah! So going on with the theme of deafness in the arts, we decided to have a look at season two, episode six of Master of None, the Aziz Ansari Netflix series, which actually goes away from the main storyline and the main characters and actually looks at, I think it's three different people's lives around New York. And one of them is a deaf woman. And we're going to talk about that because basically it kind of has this almost seamless transition. So the main characters walk past a doorman and then it goes to the doorman's perspective. And then I think people inside that apartment complex then get into no somebody comes out of the apartment complex and goes into a shop and then the assistant then takes over and the shop assistant is deaf and the music stops there's no background sound it just goes silent and at first you're like um did my tv break <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that was my first thought check the volume yeah and I read an article and it's like, no, quite a few people did that where they were like, wait, no, did something happen on my computer? Uh -huh. um, but no, it's on purpose. And her whole segment where she's the main character is completely silent. And I read a lot of articles that praised that because you don't see that. Yeah, no subtitles. There was subtitles. No, there wasn't. There was. Wait, what, was that in the one that you watched? Yeah, when she's doing the sign language. Wait, I on the, when I watched it, there wasn't any subtitles. Do you watch without subtitles? Did you watch the whole thing with subtitles? Yeah, I watch everything with subtitles. Without subtitles, there's no subtitles. Oh well, with subtitles. Wait, did you miss the entire plot of that her storyline? Yeah, but no, because if if you don't watch it with subtitles, like if you don't watch the entire thing with subtitles, right? Which most hearing people don't. There's I no subtitles it. for that scene. 
That's so weird. I thought it would yeah. come up automatically. No, 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 no. There's no subtitles. Oh. Oh, yeah. that's... Oh. Oh, there's another <laughs> level. Oh, this just got deeper. Because I sometimes have issues like like hearing. My process uh-huh. is not quite... I don't process things fast enough half the time. Um, yeah. So I, I watch everything with subtitles. I can't... Wa- I can watch stuff without subtitles, but I don't like uh, it. Okay. That's fair. Well, yeah, if you watch it without sub, the whole thing about subtitles, then that scene doesn't have subtitles, and which makes it even more poignant because of the, the few scenes you do see with signing in, they are, they're, they're often subtitled, but this doesn't have subtitles in it. It flips it, doesn't it? Because it makes you think like, oh, so this is what um, people who can't hear, that's how they feel when they watch a film, which is hearing, and maybe there's scenes where they can't lip read or something like that. Oh, there's or, no subtitles. Yeah, yeah. It's literally flipped. That's really... I didn't know that. Mm, that's yeah, really, So you flipped. missed, like, everything. Well, no, because that's the thing. Because of... it. What, the other thing that it shows you is that you can still understand a lot of the message through facial expressions, through looking at some of the signs that are easy to understand. Because I did follow a lot of the story. Yeah. But the most important thing is, you know they have an argument in a yes. store did you follow yeah. what the argument was about yes i did really yeah 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 you should try watching it about subtitles that's interesting yeah i did and it's hilarious yeah basically they so she's married and she's with her husband in a store and they just full-on have an argument about how he hasn't gone down in her in months mm-hmm. just in the middle of the store and it's is so it's funny like it's actually putting comedy into it and it's not like, oh it's so sad that she's deaf it's like no this is how it is for every day for deaf people every day and they're doing the kind of sign language thinking that no one can understand and then these kids start running around doing the asl for vagina and then that that lady their mom comes well I assume it's their mom yeah. comes along and is like like angrily signing at them like yeah crazy, she's like, like can you stop arguing about oral sex in a shop <laughs> oh, it's great. not as private as you think like my kids understand asl <laughs> it's great it was yeah and i've like i watched like a couple of like deaf people talking about it and they said that it was nice to see deaf people in pop culture and it's not like oh it's so tragic it's like no it's just they're normal people with their normal lives like she works in a store and she has a conversation with her friend and meets her for coffee and actually the person that she meets for coffee um that's actually one of the people they interviewed when they were writing no way the episode yeah the the actress i should also say she is actually deaf um which i was like kind of hoping she was no no i didn't like wish deafness upon her but like if you are playing a kind of a character from a minority group it's nice to know that person is actually from the minority group because if it's not done correctly, they can have a bit of a say in how it's done. Yeah, it adds authenticity and also it means that people from that group are getting jobs as well. I was literally about to say because mm. like not many people would want to hire a deaf actress, which yeah. is not how it should be. Yeah, historically it has been like that, although there has been an increase in deaf actors very recently. Like I don't know if you've heard of Millicent Simmons, who stole the show in, um, I think, yeah, it was out this year, The Quiet Place, it's a thriller. Lots of thriller, did really well, critically acclaimed, and she was incredible. She plays a deaf child, and the, the premise is that the whole family are in an apocalyptic land, 
where these monsters roam the earth and these monsters are blind but they are their hearing is really really good so this family basically have to live without making any noise and the reason why they get by and why they've done so well so far is because they all know how to sign oh. because of the daughter is deaf yeah and so i that's haven't watched it i've heard a lot about it yeah she's great and she also stars in wonderstruck which premiered at Cannes last year and i i i, I read an article about it earlier and the, i think it was the new york times which said that it casts a new spotlight on the hurdles facing deaf audiences performers and storytellers and filmmaking which trails well behind tv and streaming in every aspect of the deaf experience yeah it's really cool um, yeah exactly so it does seem like moves are being made but um i also saw a criticism of baby driver which starred a deaf comedian uh, he's a comedian and actor and so he was in it signing but tom Humphreys, who teaches at the university of california wrote that the editing cut into CJ's signed lines so much often we couldn't see his signing. That's reality. Audiences are overwhelmingly hearing. So I guess Hollywood needs to make sure that when they do have deaf actors and actresses, they're still making sure to cater to deaf audiences. Just make sure they're doing it right. Like, it looked like um, Aziz Ansari and... Is it Alan Yang? Yeah. It looked like they actually went, right, how do we do this properly? Yeah. And from what I've seen from like deaf people that have like talked about it that they did a pretty decent job. Yeah, it seems like it. And the actress, what's her name? Trishelle Edmund. There we go. Yeah, she seemed really happy with the role that she was given. Yeah, cuz she did a speech. She accepted a writing award for it and she did a really nice little speech talking about how nice it was to mm. actually get a good role like that yeah which is which is great to see and we hope that hollywood tv streaming continues in that direction oh another thing that's good to note um she is a woman of color yes yeah disabled women of color often do get cut out of the disability conversation so that is brilliant to hear yeah she made a good point of that she was like you don't see it especially when it comes to black people yeah um that's which is really cool because you you don't expect to have two minorities in one go in uh, pop culture stuff. Yeah, yeah. because she was speaking to that a- uh, deaf Asian lady, wasn't she? Yeah. I don't know. I love Master of None anyway because it's doing a really cool thing with the whole medium because it takes yeah. like, a different issue each week. Like it's touched on like being a woman, being a woman, yeah. being a woman, uh, no, being a woman and kind of sexual harassment and stuff like that and being this child of an immigrant or yeah. racism, sexism, stuff like that. Religion has come up as well. So for them to pick up on stuff like that, I thought was really cool. And all three of the characters that are focused on, none of them were white. Yeah, that's true. I do think it's also worth saying, if we praise Master of None, that the director, Aziz Azari, has had claims of a claim of sexual harassment. Oh, great. Brought up against him. <laughs> Um, oh, no. Yeah, I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can make up your own mind about it. Um, okay, I didn't know that, but if you if you were to treat it as a standalone that episode and that scene as standalone, then it has really done a lot and it does do a lot. Um, but yeah, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so that's the end of episode two. And like I said at the start of the episode, we'd really love it if you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes. And yeah, look out for the next episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at disability t, and we've disability got with two s's. Disability with two s's. Because I was adamant page. on having a pun. 
it, it's a good fun. Like, I was chuckling about it when I did the interview on BBC Radio Norfolk and I, I had to explain that. it. And then on the way back, I was just having a little chuckle, like, yeah, it's, it's a good fun. <laughs> I just th- I think it's fantastic. I think we did a great job. Uh, yeah, yeah, even if no one else does. Yeah, no, I, I the, we're having a good time and that's all that matters. But yeah, mm. it's disability tea with two S's. Yeah, okay, awesome. So yeah, thank you. And we will, yeah, next episode. Yeah. See ya. Bye.